Jenny. Uh, as Jenny said, my name is Yvette, and I've been coming for about a year. Um, it's, it's no great mystery, but eventually I intend to move north, which is where most of my family are gravitating towards, so at some point I'll be following them. Um, I was asked to speak this morning on the back of the podcast, which some of you might have heard about when you know, things in life hit you really hard, uh, because I seem to be to have accumulated quite a lot of hard hits. Just, um, um, I have this theory, which um, I wish worked. It doesn't work. My theory is, and I've, I've tried to make it work for many years, my theory is that enough bad things have happened to me over my life, therefore nothing else bad is ever allowed to happen to me again. Um, of course, you know, my theory doesn't work. Uh, and actually, when we first come uh, to give our lives to Jesus, some people actually think, that's it, all my problems are solved. Uh, I have to tell you, they're not. Um, but you have God with you to help solve all your problems, and he really will walk you through them. So, so my um, alternative CV, if you like, non-work-related, is that uh, I was adopted as a baby, therefore I was given up by my birth parents. Um, but I was adopted into a really lovely family. I had great mum and dad, a uh, great big brother, uh, who's just retiring from leading the church in Thetford. Um, and it was a very happy childhood, except for uh, an episode when my mother got really ill. And uh, I was separated from her for weeks at a time, because I now know as an adult that what she had was probably ovarian cancer. Um, and uh, obviously it took a lot of skill from the doctors to get her through that. Uh, but I had quite a lot of... I'd been separated from one mother, and then I was separated from another mother, so I was a bit anxious as an older child, not surprisingly, perhaps. Um, then as a parent, um, I had the blow that both my... Uh, I have a, a daughter and two sons. Both my sons were diagnosed with autism, um, and neither of, them fa uh, neither of them actually developed speech at the right time. They both had quite a lot of speech delay. My youngest one, Matthew, still, you can't hold a conversation with him. He says a few words here and there, but uh, you can't have a conversation with him. Uh, the other one actually talks for a living because he's a motorsport commentator. And he's gone from not being able to speak to, it's very difficult to find the off switch. Um, he's absolutely delightful, but uh, he talks all the time, really. Uh, so God's well, I don't know that he's overhealed him. I mean, he still has, <laughs> he still has some autistic traits, but um, obviously he is nowhere near where he used to be. Um, I actually lost both my parents by the time I was 31 because they were slightly older parents. And uh, so by the time I was 31, I didn't have parents anymore. Uh, then when I was 39, my husband left me. Um, uh, we'd been married 16 years, and he left me for a man, which was a bit of a conversation stopper. Um, I did actually once tell somebody that, and he just stood with his mouth open for about five minutes, because it's, you know, it's not the norm. Uh, it also meant as well that he turned his back on everything church. He had been a, a worship leader, and then suddenly this dad who had told his kids, this is what I believe in, all the time they were growing up, had rejected all of it in, in favor of going off and living this alternative lifestyle. And then not all that long after that, I got really ill. And I got an illness that, unless you get it, you've probably never heard of. It's called myasthenia gravis. Uh, it means severe muscle weakness, and basically it stops your neurotransmitters telling your muscles what to do. And if I was still really sort of suffering from it, you would hear it in my speech. 
because it, it affects my speech and uh, my eyes. Uh, it's known as the ragdoll illness because it just makes you feel, when you're having an attack of it, it just makes you feel limp, like a sort of wilted lettuce leaf. And you feel about as much help to the world as a wilted lettuce leaf too. Um, but uh, that, that involved also having um, major surgery. It was a bit like having open heart surgery. They had to take a gland out the middle of my chest. I had to have radiotherapy because it turned out to be slightly not very nice. Um, but I've kind of like got back onto an even keel. And as you can hear, I'm, I'm relatively healthy now. Um, so God walked me through that one. Then my daughter got ill um, and she had, uh, she had a fibroid. Now, lots of women have fibroids. But the size of hers was the equivalent to 32 weeks gestation of a fetus. Uh, so it was growing inside her abdomen, not inside a womb, actually outside the womb. So it was giving her compression syndrome. All her organs were being compressed. And they said if it carried on growing, uh, it would actually kill her. Um, and uh, she saw a, a consultant who told her at 25 and not yet married that her only option was a hysterectomy. It didn't happen because God had other plans. Yes. Um, she had a fantastic GP who was not known for her bedside manner, I have to say. But she was great. She fought the consultant and said, this isn't good enough for this young girl. You have to find an alternative. We have to find an alternative. And she put her in touch with the Withenshaw Hospital in Manchester who said, yeah, we deal with this sort of thing all the time. And they got it resolved. They, they managed to remove it without actually her even needing a blood transfusion. Um, which was, you know, a great thing. Um, not all that long before uh, the pandemic, about two months before the pandemic, I lost one of my oldest best friends uh, to breast cancer. I'd walked with her sort of through three years of treatment, and she'd been through goodness knows how many rounds of chemotherapy. Um, but she died the most, I think, kind of heroic Christian death. There was a being just pandemic, we were able to be with there, and there were about a dozen of us piled into her private, uh, you know, her side ward, just her in the room, and uh, she had us reading scripture and uh, singing choruses, and she was joining in for a while as she could. Her cousin rang during this time on my phone and was able to speak to her, and she said, I'm going home, I'm going to heaven. Uh, and Elaine used to do the projector at... Um, at church and put the, the words, Lou's laughing because she knows what's coming. Um, she used to put the words up on the screen sometimes, and we never had much of a rotor, actually. Uh, the guy in charge was, would actually ring you up sort of about Wednesday and go, can you do Sunday? That's fine. This was a Wednesday night that she was dying, and one of her dying words was, uh, tell Robin I can't do the projector on Sunday. <laughs> if I can think of anything half as good for my dying words, I will be very pleased. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic hit everybody, and uh, I run my own business, and 80% of my business disappeared overnight. Um, uh, my son, the motorsport commentator, of course, all sport was cancelled, so all of his business disappeared. But God provided. And then just over a year ago, my church closed. I'm not the common factor, I have to say. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. <laughs> But we do go through real trials in life, don't we? And, and we're not alone. Uh, we're by no means the only ones. St. Paul himself had what he described as his thorn in his flesh. In 2 Corinthians 12, 
verse 7 to 10, he says this. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know that I actually delight in hardships. Anyone here delight in hardships? But I have proved, I think, in my own life, I have seen that God's grace is sufficient. And I have seen that when I'm weak, he's strong. So how do we get through these things? I, I, when I was preparing this, I said to my brother, I, I might take a leaf out of Peter Cook's um, book and, and call this, My Life Has Been a Miserable Failure, <laughs> which is a line from one of the sketches. But... Um, I think it's more accurate to, be, to say that I'm more like the Chumbawamba song, I get knocked down, but I get up again. <laughs> and in that song it says, I get knocked down, but I get up again 28 times. So there's like no end to it. You can get knocked down, but you can get up again. And sometimes when you get up again, you limp. It's a bit like when you see, if, those of you who watch football, um, People get tackled and they end up on the ground writhing in pain. But then they get up again and for a little while they seem to limp and then they run it off and they're back in the game. And I think that's what we are called to do. See, I can testify that I'm not the product of all the awful things that have happened to me nearly so much as I am the product of all the victories that Jesus has helped me to win. I can honestly say that. I am not the product of all the awful things that have happened to me. I'm the product of the victories that he's allowed me to win. So how? How do you survive these victories? Because it can be really difficult to keep going and to keep going in your faith. It, it can really knock your faith when something difficult happens, when, when you lose somebody. I've seen people that when people die, they turn away. They kind of lose their track. They lose their thread. They stay away from church. They... They stop going to church. They kind of give up on their faith. I'd say participation in church life is absolutely key to survival. It really is. The enemy likes to pick off anyone who wanders away. Uh, I mean, you see it in the wild. It's the stragglers, the ones that aren't with the pack, with the flock, that get picked off. And uh, it is difficult to keep going sometimes, but you have to, even if coming to church means sobbing all the way through the service. That's absolutely fine, because this is a safe place to sob. You're amongst family. It's okay to say, I'm, I'm struggling, but please keep coming. Because somebody once said to me, the trouble with living sacrifices is they do tend to crawl off the altar. We mustn't crawl off the altar. We've been singing this morning and, and pledging that we're going to be on the altar. We're, allowed, we're putting our lives on the altar. Don't, if things get hard, crawl off again. It's too easy to do. Similarly, don't pretend that everything's fine 
and expect people to work out that it's not. And, and please don't stay away from church for three weeks and say, nobody noticed I wasn't there. Nobody's come after me. Because the, you know, the leaders here are occupied enough with the people who are turning up, bringing all their problems. <laughs> they don't need to go looking for the ones who aren't turning up to have plenty to do. If you have any, any kind of trouble, meet with your community group, meet with church, participate in church life. And don't expect that because one thing has gone wrong or one thing's really difficult, that everything else will be too. You know, we don't have to be defined by this one thing that's going wrong or, or two things that are going wrong. There are still good things. God still gives good things. God is still good, no matter what. And I always think if the enemy has scored a point against you in one area, that's the time to hit him back because he's probably off his guard. He's probably celebrating you know, it's a bit like those war films where they used to attack when the Germans were having a good drink and celebrating a victory and in would go the assault team and win that victory. We can be the same. If the enemy thinks they've scored a point, we can go score several back. We can take back what the enemy has gained. So if you're going through a hard time, don't disqualify yourself from being one of the people who serves and who wins victories because you can still be. Equally, I think it's right to be authentic, to say, I am struggling with this. Uh, and sometimes people say things which are, uh, are not particularly helpful, like, oh, it'll be all right. You heard that one? When you know very well it's not going to be all right. This is something really major that I've got to get through. It's not just all going to be fine. We need to get through this. But you don't have to do it alone. You can do it with the family of God around you. It's really, I think, essential to be honest with God and say, I really don't like this season. The Psalms are full of people saying, I really don't like this season, help me. That's not only fine, it's biblical. We need to be close to God and we need to ask him for his help. A hard season does not mean that God does not love you. He loves you. Look what his son did on the cross. If you need any more evidence, we had that beautiful picture of the daisy earlier. He loves me. He loves me. There is no he loves me, he loves me not. It's he loves me, he loves me. Even though you're going through a hard time, he loves you. And the enemy would love us to believe that God doesn't. He would love to say to us and does say to us, well, how did God allow that to happen? If he loves you, how did God allow that to happen? How did he let that person do that thing to you? What I've realized over the years is that people are responsible for what people do. God is not responsible for what people do. If people have chosen to hurt me or hurt me accidentally or been careless with my feelings, it's, it's down to them. It's not down to God. It does not mean that God does not love me. I've also found that through really hard times, God chooses to bless me. Not sort of like, once this is over, I'll bless you, but in the midst of it, he does bless me. He doesn't take his hands off our lives. I said at the beginning that I was adopted as a baby. And uh, 
I had a, a great family that I was put with. I discovered um, not long before lockdown, I was looking back into my uh, original birth story, uh, partly prompted by my brother, who uh, I knew my adoption story. I knew who my uh, natural mother and father were. Uh, my mother was a lecturer in psychology at Leicester University, and later she became a um, sort of like a senior official in the civil service, vetting senior civil service people, see what their psychology was, were they sort of robust enough for senior office. So she was quite a woman. She, um, she gave birth to me in November and then went home for Christmas without telling her family she'd ever been pregnant, as if nothing had happened. Quite a woman. Apparently she went to lectures at uni until the day before I was born. So she was, she was quite a formidable woman, I think. But um, obviously, giving up a child for adoption is not a hiccup. It's something major and will have hurt her a lot. And when I eventually got in touch with her, I said to her, I did wonder all day on my 21st birthday, is she thinking of me? She said, I always thought of you on your birthday and other times as well. So you don't forget that sort of thing. Well, what I discovered when uh, my brother then uh, looked into his birth details, having always said he never would, um, looked into his birth details and actually found his birth family, his mother's family. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe I might do this. I've got four half-siblings that I know about who have no idea that I exist, if you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea it's you I'm talking about anyway. Um, so I started looking into my... Um, the possibility of tracing them again. And they said, well, what we'd like to do is go right back to the beginning and reshare with you your adoption details. So um, somebody came out and chatted with me, and there was an episode I'd never seen. And this episode I'd never seen um, told me that before I ended up with uh, the Worth family, who were my adoptive family, I was potentially going to be adopted by somebody else. And it was a sort of a wintry morning, and all sorts of things happened to conspire against this actually happening. Like, for one, I was a bit ill, so I wasn't looking my blooming best, possibly. Um, the social worker who was supposed to join them at the, the adoption home, uh, her car wouldn't start, she couldn't get there. These strange God incidences, aren't they? Um, and also the woman who ran the home told the couple who um, were potentially going to adopt me, that I was 50% below the standard of normal baby that they would offer. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> uh, and so it didn't come about, but what I discovered, and what I was the only person who could put these facts together, what I realised was the guy who was supposed to adopt me with his, with his wife, he was a lecturer at Leicester University. And there was a very good chance they could have met each other. And that it could have upset everything, because uh, I've seen a photo of my birth mother and I look quite like her. And had I been this little child running around with exactly the birth date that the child she gave up, it could have derailed her career, it could have upset all sorts of people, it could have upset my life. So at, at three months old, God had his hand on my life. And, you know, more than 25 years later, I discovered this. <laughs> He also finds really creative ways to help. When I was going in for my operation, um, I had to spend three weeks in hospital in Oxford because there were only like three centres in the country that did this particular operation because it's quite a rare condition. Um, 
And so I, I had to pack loads of books. I thought, I really need to pack loads of books. Um, and uh, I had this feeling that I should read a book I'd read before, many years ago, in, uh, written in 1975. It's called Hind's Feet on High Places. Some of you will, will know it. And it's an allegory of the gospel about a young woman called Much Afraid. And she goes on this journey through sort of sorrow and suffering. I thought, well, that's going to be cheerful in hospitals. <laughs> but I had this really strong feeling that I should read it. Yeah. And then my sister-in-law said to me, I have a feeling that you should read Hind's Feet on High Places. I thought, it's not a current book. It's, you know, it's not a topical book. I've felt this. She's felt this. I need to take this with me. So I, I took this book with me, packed it. Uh, and my three weeks consisted of week one was having this immunoglobulin treatment where they cleaned my blood. Um, my blood has uh, rogue T cells. You've heard a bit about T cells during the pandemic because that's what the, uh, the vaccine clings to to immunize you. Mine are a bit peculiar, so I'm not quite sure where I stand. Um, but this treatment got rid of them and I felt fabulous for the first time in months and months and months. I felt great. It was like all my symptoms disappeared. I felt wonderful. Uh, the next week, really, they were just kind of monitoring me. And on the Friday, I was going to have my operation, which was like open heart surgery. They brought in the cardiothoracic surgeon to butterfly me. Um, and to actually think, I feel fabulous. Now I've got to lay down on an operating table and let somebody rip my chest open. It was quite an act of faith, really. It was quite tricky to think, well, can't you just give me that drip treatment every few weeks and I'll be fine, you know? Um, but they couldn't. This thing had to come out. And so I was reading Hind's Feet on High Places, and the night before my operation, I got to this point in the book where Much Afraid has been led along a mountain path, and she gets to what is a stone altar at the foot of the mountains, and the priest that she meets there, who, you know, you're pretty sure that's Jesus, gets her to lay down on the altar, he reaches into her chest and he pulls out this plant that's been growing there. And I'm sort of reading this thinking, ooh, <laughs> this is probably a sign. And it, it says in it that, um, in this passage, it says that this, this plant he held up so she could see that every root, every fiber was intact, everything had gone. So I had this extraordinary reassurance from God that it's going to be okay. Uh, and it has been. And I, I have a CT scan every couple of years, every so often, and there is nothing been, nothing has come back. And I'm, I'm good. I, the drugs do work. I, I can speak clearly. And uh, we're fine. So God took the trouble to actually give me that sign to bless me while I was facing something that was quite daunting. I read the bit from Corinthians about Paul uh, and his thorn in his flesh. We don't know what the thorn was. That's not actually uh, outlined in the Bible. But we, we tend to think, well, a thorn, that's, we know what thorns are like. They're on rose bushes or, or you know, shrubs and things. We know what thorns are like. But that Greek word, yeah, Alison knows particularly what thorns are like, so does Sophie. Um, but we're not talking about a gardening context. The, the word in the Greek here, apparently, this thorn, this could be a stake as big as a stake that you could be impaled on. This was something pretty painful. And we don't know whether this was a mental anguish or a physical anguish, but Paul lived with this. And he decided it wouldn't stop him. 
I mean, obviously it didn't stop him. We have his body of letters. We know how he traveled, how he spread the gospel. We know that it didn't stop him. He chose to see it as a kind of handbrake to stop him getting too big for his boots. This will stop me being conceited, he said. It's an amazing example that actually you don't have to be defined by the conflict, by the, the hardship that you're going through. It's good to remember that it will not always be like this. These things are for a season. It will not always be like this. When you're going through a challenge, sometimes initially it's a terrible thing. When they told me the diagnosis for my boys, this was devastating. My, my sons were autistic. What does this say for the future? This is awful. Actually, now we've learned to live with this, and we've learned that in some ways it doesn't hold us back, in a few ways it does, but in many ways it doesn't. Sometimes it can still be a strain. He recently moved from a care home to supported living, and I, I had to fight the social worker to get him in there, but actually most of the time he's a really cheeky chappy. Um, he's always the favorite wherever he goes. And it's not a crisis anymore. It's just something we live with. It will not always be like this. I just want to say a word about how to be supportive to people who are going through hard times. It can be really difficult to know how to talk to them. Um, when we were doing the podcast, Jane talked about the, the friend at church who every time she saw him said, can I pray for you? I mean, that's brilliant. To, to keep holding people in prayer is brilliant. But if you're not sure what to say, actually, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is that people know that you're standing with them. I can remember one, when I was going through my illness, one guy just coming, sitting next to me at church and saying, I don't know how to help. I don't know what to say, but I just want you to know that I care, that I'm with you. That was all I needed. And there was another occasion when um, I, was, I was asked to go on a worship weekend to Ashburnham Place um, with there were four of us went from church. And I'd, uh, I'd had a, a good morning session, but actually that weekend was really difficult for me because it was my ex-husband's birthday and it was the first time he, he had the kids with him and it was the first time I wasn't there for his birthday. And I was you know, still pretty brokenhearted at having been left. And it was a difficult morning and I came down to lunch and I was in the dining room and they have at Ashburnham Place they have these huge oak refectory tables that seat about 12 people uh, and I was joined by Paul and Alistair who'd gone with me and they said uh, how are you doing and I said uh, um, it's difficult it's a bit of a struggle because it's Eric's birthday today and normally I would have been with him and I just feel really glum and they said can we pray for you and I said, yes, sure. And they, I kind of I had my hand on the table and they put a hand on my ha hand each. And I waited to hear them pray. And it didn't come. Instead, what happened was that they cried. My two butch brothers in Jesus sat and they wept and they sobbed and they shed tears for me. They didn't say a word. They just cried. They wept with those who mourn. And I've always thought that if they had prayed for me, I probably wouldn't remember what they prayed. But until the day I die, I will not forget my two brothers in Christ sitting and crying with me, weeping 
really have to stay close to God to get through these things. His plan for us is always restoration. He always plans to bring us safely through to the other side. Romans 8 verse 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him. In Jeremiah we read, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Someone gave that out in church uh, the Sunday after my husband left. They had no idea why they were giving it. I did. And when I reminded her of it uh, a year later, she had no memory of that, but I did. I clung to that verse through many trials and over many years. God doesn't always restore the things that we think he should. And his plans are not always our plans. And sometimes it's a long time until we see good come out of it. Just this summer, I got a new client. And uh, the first thing she said to me was, uh, I'm sorry if I seem tired. She said, I have this strange illness called myasthenia. I said, no. <laughs> I said, I've got that. She went, I could cry. She said, I, I've had this for three years. I haven't met anybody else who's even heard of it, let alone got it. And it's been, you know, I've been a comfort to her. It's taken 20 years, but here's God brought some real good out of it. It is important along the way, especially when we've been hurt by other people, to forgive. And there are things that, you know, from our pasts are really difficult to forgive. There are some things from way back that maybe we haven't quite forgiven yet. And some people, I find, we have to forgive over and over and over again. Because although they've hurt us, they kind of stay in your life somehow and they keep saying things that are hurtful or they keep doing things that are hurtful and you have to forgive them over and over again. But it's important to grasp this and this was what really helped me with forgiveness is the realisation that Jesus didn't just die on the cross for everything that I did, for all my sins, for all the wrong choices I made, for all the wrong things I've said. He also died for everything that was done to me or against me. Whether that person had accepted Jesus or not, whether they repented or not, Jesus paid for what they did. So when he asks us to forgive, it's not out of letting them off the hook. It's because he's already paid. It's not that difficult to grasp that as a concept, but the challenge is to live it. See, in all the things that I've, I've been through, my default setting now is God will provide because I've seen it time and time and time again. And when he says, forgive, I know that I can because he paid for it. Whatever it was, he paid for it. I think we have an opportunity this morning if there are things in the past that we've been bruised by that we've never quite forgiven. I think there's an opportunity to let go of those this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would and I'm just going to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for what you did on the cross. I thank you that you didn't just do it for my benefit. You didn't just do it for the benefit of everybody here, Lord, but you did it 
to change things utterly. That you paid for everything. You didn't tot up the sins of those who were going to repent. You, you paid for everything. Every wrong thing done against us, Lord, you have paid for. Thank you so much, Lord. Will you please help us to forgive that? To let go of that? And to look forward to your plans for us for the future? I just encourage you if there's something that comes to mind. There is an opportunity this morning to forgive and to move on. Father, thank you that we don't have to be held by the past. Thank you that we can be victorious rather than battered and bruised. Help us, Lord, to see your plan for us, to follow it and to win those victories that you have in store for us. Amen. Amen.